We're wrapping up the Different Life series today. We kicked into this right after Labor Day, and for the last couple of months, we've been looking at the different kind of life that God is calling each of us to. He's doing two things. If you are in Christ, he's actually transforming this different kind of life within you as you speak, right? It's actually happening right now, and sometimes we cooperate, sometimes we resist, sometimes we put up walls, but God's at work in your life if you are in Christ. Anyone who has the Spirit of God is being made alive and renewed in God day by day, and so at some level, this different life is inevitable. Yet at the same time, we fall so short, don't we, of that which God idealizes and that which God dreams, and so we've been looking these past couple of months at what this different life looks like as a simultaneous call by God to each of us as well. We've been using that ancient statement of faith called the Ten Commandments, or better, the Ten Words, the Ten Ideas, Ten Bullet Points, if you will, that God gave to ancient Israel by which to categorize and think about their relationship and different kind of life, both with him and with each other. And today we come to the final. Or I guess I should say, by our ordering and number, the final two. Here they are. Say them with me, would you please? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his ass or anything that is your neighbor's. There it is. Some traditions will make this one commandment and they'll simply call it the tenth. For obvious reasons, it's all revolving around the same concept. Augustine, that church father of old, who is responsible for so many of the patterns and ways of thinking in the Western church today, well, he split these as nine and ten. The ordering is always, or the the numerous, how you number them doesn't matter, right? (laughs) What matters is the content. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, his wife, his manservant or maidservant. How many manservants and maidservants have you been coveting this week, huh? Or his ox or his ass or anything that is your neighbor's, right? You know, all of the, all of the commands, at least by and far, they've really been focused on what you should do or not do. This one is special. This one is different. This is one that starts getting at an inclination of the heart, isn't it? There are a lot of people in this world that I think look, look, look pretty good, pretty God-standard, pretty righteous to people around because they don't murder people and they don't steal and they don't cheat on their spouse and they honor those in authority. But you know, this one kind of takes it inside and this one takes it in deep. I'd like to wrap up the series by talking to you about this command today. And I want to start here by focusing on the word covet. You shall not covet. Now, the word covet, it has a a pejorative connotation, right? It it has a very negative sense about it, right? Like you hear the word covet and you, you don't think of that as being a good thing. Sometimes I find it helpful when we come across various words and phrases in our English translations of the Bible, though, to take a step back, to get at some root language that sometimes gives us a different perspective on things, I'd like to do that with you today. There's an ordinary, everyday Greek word 
for wanting something. And it's pronounced fellow. If you could just say fellow to get it on your lips. So I fellow going to lunch after this today. I, I fellow pizza and beer after bringing in the Christmas decoration today. I fellow the debt on this church being wiped away. There's things that I want and things that you want too. But there's an intensive, a more intense word, an intensifying word, if you will, that's a little bit different that actually stands behind this word covet that you see on the screen. And I'll just have you pronounce it with me. Epithumel. And I think the best way that you can get around translating this word is to earnestly desire something to crave something. Have you ever wanted something so bad that it just kind of marked you and consumed you? Ever just hungered for something in your soul? I want to eat, but I crave tacos. You know what I mean? Are you with me on this? I want to go home. No, I want to go home so bad. I am so homesick or sick of being here. You, you, you know what I mean? Have you ever been praying with people and you've wanted them to stop? <laughs> I've wanted that too. There was this one time, I was an undergrad, I was at Valparaiso University, it was the mid-90s. Wednesday night they would have a folk service. Now folk services were all the rage in 1969, 70, and 71. So it's not surprising that a Lutheran institution picked up on it 25 years later. <laughs> but it was actually a really cool experience. Think Jesus Revolution. And that's kind of what they did in 1990s as all the rage, right? And uh, it was actually a really cool experience. And of course, if you're going to a folk service, you don't sit on chairs, you sit on pillows, right? You sit on the floor and we were all gathered there on the floor. And we would have this time where we would pray together. The spirit would move and people would just shout out their prayers. And, and there was no limit. There was no guiding principle. If you felt a burden on your heart to pray that day, you simply prayed. Pretty cool, actually. Right? And it was a really, really amazing experience, especially for people who were coming out of very staid, structured, liturgical traditions. But there was this one girl. I would even call her a friend. I mean, I, I liked her. Not like that, but I mean, I just, you know, I liked her, you know? And she just would not shut up. And I don't know about you, but sitting Indian style on a pillow is not a natural position for me. And my back was screaming and she was going on and on and on. I mean, she was going for like the land speed record of distance praying that had ever been seen. And I remember hating this girl that I liked as a friend. I remember my prayers that day and I remember them as vividly today as it was back in 1990, whatever it was. God, would you shut her up? <laughs> That is epithumeo, to earnestly desire and crave something in your being. You shall not earnestly desire or crave your neighbor's house, his wife, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, it's fascinating that this word epithumeo, it will get used in a variety of senses and translated in a variety of ways in your New Testament. Sometimes it's used positively. Like when Jesus is gathered with his disciples 
at Passover. And he tells them this, I have so epithumoud to eat this Passover meal with you. You can look it up in your Bible. I've so longed to eat this Passover meal with you. I've so desired to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. Jesus told them, because I tell you this, I will not eat of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus craved something. Sometimes it's used in a more neutral sense. I think of that great parable Jesus told. The prodigal son, you remember this one? There's a son, and he goes to his father, and he says, Father, I kind of want you to just drop dead because I'm more interested in what you have than in you, so give me my share of the inheritance. And he goes off and takes it and squanders it, as Jesus puts it, in wild living, whatever that means, in a far-off country. And he finds himself that the money has run out, and he's now destitute and broke, and he's pawning himself off to take any job he can, and he starts working for a pig farmer, and he's feeding the pigs, and it says how he looked at the slop the pigs were eating and longed or epithumaoed to fill his stomach with pea pods that those pigs were eating that day. I think of the other great story Jesus tells of the rich man and Lazarus. There's a rich man who, who occupies his life in luxurious living and feasting and all the while sitting right outside his gate as a poor man named Lazarus, who's filled with sores, and the rich man doesn't even give him a glance, but even the dogs have compassion on this man named Lazarus and come and lick his wounds. And how Lazarus, epithumaoed, to fill his stomach with even just the scraps that fell from the rich man's table, how he hungered for them and yearned for them Is that positive? Is that negative? Oh, how dare he covet something like that? Well, you wrestle that one out on your own, but that's how the term is used. And sometimes it's used just very negatively as well as when Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who epithumaos Another woman in his heart has already committed adultery with her. And of course, you probably know that one that usually gets translated lust. Anyone who's desiring or craving, not his own wife, but the wife that isn't his, that other woman or man, if you will, is doing the same thing. This is the field of vision. That's standing behind this word in this command as we try to understand the different kind of life Jesus is calling us to. And here he says, I don't want you craving. I don't want you earnestly desiring. I don't want you obsessing and pursuing and seeking that which is not your own, your neighbor's house or wife or manservant or maidservant or ox or ass or really anything that is your neighbor's. But sometimes I think that this commandment gets a little bit confused or misunderstood. Sometimes I think we summarize this commandment in our minds, don't we? It's like, just boil it down. Well, don't covet. 
But see, it doesn't say that. It specifies it. It says, don't covet something specific. Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's spouse, your neighbor's servant, your neighbor's stuff. Because I'll tell you this, God is a God who makes good, good things. Would you agree? And God has filled this world with so many wonderful things that he wants us to enjoy. God has given you passions, drives, an inclination of the heart to want things, achievements, growth, next steps. And these are wonderful gifts of God. What this commandment is not doing is advocating for a passionless existence as the ascetics through the Christian history have so long misunderstood. So feast, dream, pursue, and do it with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength to the glory of God on high. But it becomes off limits when it's your neighbor's. And so maybe the way to think about this command is this. It is good to want something. It is not good to want something specific that belongs to someone else. So let's take this command and go through it. Your neighbor invites you over. You go to his house and you have dinner. And you look around and it's beautiful. It's, it's just the way they decorate it is incredible. The square footage they have is like, ah. Oh, and you find yourself looking out the window at their view going, wow, I would love to live in a house like this someday. What a wonderful thing to want and desire. But it gets off limits when it's, I want your house. You start to become friends with a the couple. They're married, you're not and you see the joy that they have together. The laughter, the way that they poke and prod each other, the way that they tease each other, but the way that they have this, this, this bedrock of trust and intimacy. And, and you see your neighbor's wife, and you go, wow, I would love to be married to a woman like that someday. What a wonderful thing. But you know when it goes off limits? When it switches to I want her. Do you see what I mean? You're on a team at work. You're on a team at school. And you see the cohesiveness this, this team has. You see, see this other team you're playing against and just how they work together and gel together and fire each other up. And you're like, man, I wish our team had something like that. What a wonderful thing to want. But when you start looking to rob their players. When you start looking to take theirs, it becomes something very different. Would you agree? You pull into your driveway and you see your neighbor's ox parked in his. <laughs> and you just look at the raw power. And you start fantasizing about what it would be like to be behind the wheel of an ox like that. Someday I'm going to drive an ox like that. 
Hey, I get it. What a good thing to want, right? But when it switches to neighbor, wanting your neighbor's ox, do you see how it crosses the line? And don't get me even started about coveting your neighbor's ass, all right? <laughs> the neighbors are over in the driveway looking at it, admiring it, and he's showing it off for all to see. He tells you he only takes it out on dry, sunny days, and every Sunday he rubs it with wax and a microfiber diaper, and it makes sense because it's so shiny, right? You're like, man, that's a fine ass. <laughs> Someday, but not his. Are you with me? This is what the commandment is getting at. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist on that. You know, it's just, I really am sorry if. <laughs> but you know, there's something unsaid here. And it goes even further than this. Something this command itself doesn't state, but something that Jesus gets into, because Jesus has a funny way of taking these commands and putting them on steroids. He ratchets them up so that none of us can deceive ourselves into thinking that because we followed the letter of the law, that we are truly embodying the full spirit of what the law represents. And here's where I want to move into something called contentment. Because we live in a culture that wants and wants and wants more and more and more. And life revolves around getting more of something, doesn't it? This is the consuming drive of our world today. But Jesus, he has a very radically different way of looking at things. And he calls us to a very radically different way of life as well. He challenges us with a simple word, contentment. What does it look like to shift from the world's pattern of always striving, always desiring, always accumulating, always trying to get more, to being happy with what God has given you? Because if you can make that mental shift, I want to tell you something. I think you're going to be a lot happier. And I think the angels in heaven will sing. And I think God will be glorified. There's this great passage of the Bible. It comes out of a, fee, uh, or rather, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4. Paul finds himself in prison. Now, there's a guy in want. There's a guy who's got a reason to earnestly desire or crave. Would you agree? And look, look at what he says. He writes to this Philippian church that's helping him out. Ah, oh, I'm rejoicing in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. So, you know, it's, it's a thank you letter. Thank you guys, because I'm here languishing and you're helping me. You're remembering me. It's something I so badly want. You're feeding me. You're taking care of my needs. I'm rejoicing in God that you're doing it. He says, indeed, you have been concerned, but Kind of like until now, you had no opportunity to show it, so thank you. But look how he goes on. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, which he clearly is. But do you see his attitude? Because I have learned to be content. I've learned to be content with whatever the circumstances. Can you learn to also be content whether you are in need or whether you have plenty, 
And rather than focusing on what you don't have, to praise God and rejoice in him greatly for what you do. He goes further. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. That's brutal. That's no small feat. How do you learn the secret of being content in whatever your situation might be, whether well-fed or hungry? living in plenty or in want. Because Paul knows this and Jesus wants you to know it too. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can face everything through him who gives me strength. I can endure everything through him who gives me strength. And I can find joy in every situation through him who gives me strength. Yeah, it was good for you to share in my troubles. And it's good to want. And it's good to desire. And it's good to bless people in their wants and desires. But something greater still is to learn to be thankful and to be grateful and to rejoice in the wonderful gifts God has given you. Sometimes I step back, I think of that Uganda team and how little they have, not the team, but the people they went to serve. I think of how little those people in Uganda must have and how they must earnestly desire and crave what we take for granted And having done mission work, not in Uganda, but in similar places, I saw something among Christian communities that oftentimes these people in poverty have more joy than the average American middle-class citizen has today because they have learned to become content in what God has given them and praise God whatever the circumstance might be. What a challenge to you and me, isn't it? Because we got a God who has given good gifts and he ain't done yet. He hasn't shut off the pipeline. He's going to continue to pour them on you, whether you ask for them or not, whether you seek them or not, whether you recognize the gifts as the gifts they are or not. So maybe this week, let this final commandment sit in your soul just a little bit longer and take a step back. Instead of thinking about what you don't have, Say, praise God for what I do. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for being the giver of all good things. Thank you for what you have given me. And I tell you, we do that and we start to kind of think, get to the heart of what this command and the different life is all about. So we pray. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for every good and perfect gift that has come from above, from your hand into our lives. We thank you, God, for our family, even the ones who bother us, even the ones who are weird. We thank you, God, for our friends, even for the ones who aren't perfect friends. We thank you for the joy of being able to do life together. We thank you for our church. We thank you for our homes. We thank you for our cars. We thank you for our clothes. We thank you, God, for our money. We thank you for our skills, our opportunities in life, our history, and the way that you've poised us, God, for your kingdom and goodness. We thank you, God, for shaping us through the good times and the hard times of who we now stand before you as, for who you have made us to be. We thank you, God, for our health. We thank you, God, this is hard. How? For our infirmity? 
And though we yearn for healing, we, we, we pray out, God, help us to be content. Help us to be content to focus on the good and on you, on your kingdom, and knowing that you will give us what we need. I pray this, God, for those of us who are wealthy in this room, that we would not become arrogant in it, but with humility before you, recognize that everything we own ultimately finds its source back with you. I pray for those in this room who are in great need, physical need, material need, relational need, whatever. That Lord, in this time, be it of hunger or loneliness, of infirmity or whatever, that their eyes are fixed on you and you, Lord, would bring a joy and peace that passes all understanding to them. May our lives be marked as those who rejoice in you. I will say it again, rejoice. Lord, shape us in this. Move us in this. And may we delight in this to the glory of your name. And together we pray. Amen.